0: Well, in preparation for this second sermon in the four-part series on the workplace, I went online and I googled the question, why do some people hate their jobs? Why do some people hate their jobs? I got 107 million results. (laughs) I'm not making that up. 107 million websites out there that will explain to you why some people hate their jobs and what you can do about it if you're one of those people. Now, I loved one particular remedy that was described. One one writer says, okay, if you hate your job, this is what you should do. You should go to your local drugstore and ask the pharmacist where the rectal thermometers are. I love this. He says, then you go and pick up a Q-tip brand rectal thermometer. Got to be Q-tip. You'll understand why in a moment. Take it home. Unwrap it. Go in your room. Close the door. Unwrap it. Put the thermometer on your dresser. Read the instructions. And the last line of the instructions go like this. Every rectal thermometer made by Q-tip is personally (laughs) tested. This writer says, think about that for a moment, and then close your eyes and repeat out loud three times, thank God I'm not a Q-tip quality control (laughs) inspector. Thank God I'm not a Q-tip quality control inspector. Do you hate your job? You know, some of us who are listening right now at one of our four campuses, or uh, you're watching this online, you hate your job but even if you like your job even if you love your job I'm willing to bet there are certain aspects of your job that you don't care for or or there are parts of your job that you would rather you know you'd rather not have to do okay here's the big idea we're gonna draw from God's Word this morning and I want you to write this at the top of your outline so even if you don't take another look at notes the rest of the morning write this Across the top of your outline right now, here it is, God is using my job to make me into the person he wants me to be. Write that across the top of your outline right now. God is using my job to make me into the person he wants me to be. In fact, repeat it line by line after me, all four campuses, God is using my job to make me into the person he wants me to be. Good, we're in the second week of this four-part series called Job Change, and the reason we're calling it Job Change is because God wants to change your perspective about work. Here's the change we're considering today. Uh, Some of us use, uh, some, some of us see our jobs, rather, or the negative aspects of our job as tearing us down, but the truth of the matter is God can use what's tearing us down to build us up. Did you know that? You know, on your job, God can use what's tearing you down to build you up. Now, one of my favorite descriptions of God in the Bible is that of a potter, a potter. Isaiah says to God, Isaiah 64, verse 8, We are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. The prophet Jeremiah is actually directed by God to go to his local pottery shop and see one of the artisans there making clay utensil after utensil, and as the wheel is spinning around, God speaks to to Jeremiah, and he says, Jeremiah 18, verse 6, can I not do with you as this potter does? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand. The title for today's sermon is On the Potter's Wheel. On the Potter's Wheel. And again, here's the the fresh perspective. Here's the job change that I'm going to challenge you to adopt. Your job is God's potter's wheel. Your job is God's potter's wheel. God is using your job to change you into the person he wants you to be. And just in case you're thinking, well, I don't have a job, you know, because I'm unemployed. Well, no, you got a job. Your job is to be out looking for a job right now. Or you say, I don't, I, I don't have a job because I'm a high school student. No, your job is class participation and homework and so on. You say, I don't got a job, I'm a mom. Oh, sweetheart, you got many jobs. <laughs> OK, you, you are your, your children's educator and nurse and recreational director and limo driver and you name it, right? Or you say, I don't have a job, I'm retired now. Well, I hope your job, the job you're finding to do is volunteer work. So every one of us has a job. Now, I want you to turn with me to Genesis 39. Genesis, first book of your Bible, God's given us a role model in the person of Jesus of Joseph, a prominent Old Testament character. He's a stellar example of somebody who allowed God to use his job to shape his life. And we're gonna learn five lessons that God wants to teach us on the job. And if you got your program out, here's lesson number one. I'm calling it the sovereignty lesson. Okay, now sovereignty is one of those big big biblical words uh, that we don't use in casual conversation in the course of the day. What does it mean? Well, sovereignty means God is in control. He's in control not only of the universe, but he's in control of each of our individual lives. God is large and in charge. I want you to keep that in mind as I read to you the opening verse in the Joseph story. Okay, this is Genesis 39 beginning at verse 1. It says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Okay, let me give you the backstory. Uh, Joseph was one of 12 brothers. His uh, other brothers hated him because he was his dad's favorite. And so one day as they're out tending the family flock, they grab little Joey and they throw him into an abandoned well. And then they sit down to have lunch. As as they're munching on their PB&Js, an Ishmaelite Trade caravans, slave traders, comes by, and the brothers get this brainstorm. Why don't we we sell Joseph to these slave traders? And that's what they do. And then they go home, and they tell Dad that Joey had been killed by wild animals. Well, the Ishmaelite slave traders take Joseph down to Egypt, and they sell him to a guy named Potiphar, which according to verse 1 here, uh, Potiphar is a prominent official in Pharaoh's government. So Joseph goes to work for Potiphar. Now, let me stop here. At this point in the story, does it sound to you like God is in control? You know, you're thinking, wow, are you kidding me? God is sovereign in Joseph's life? Hard to see. But that's exactly what the writer of this story in Genesis wants us to see, that God is sovereign in spite of how it appears on the surface. One of the ways the writer of Genesis drives that home is his repeated use of the title for God, the Lord, the Lord, uses it seven times in this passage we're about to look at, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. In fact, let me read it to you if you got your own Bible open. By the way, this is a good reason to bring your Bible because you ought to be marking it up as we study together. So verse 2, if you got your own Bible, just underscore it right at the beginning. The Lord was with Joseph. Okay, drop down to verse 3. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, that the Lord gave him success. Okay, two more, the Lord's. Drop down to verse 5, got a couple more. Middle of the verse, the Lord blessed the household. Middle uh, or later part of the verse, the Lord was on everything Potiphar had. In fact, if you go down to the end of the story, verses 21 and 23, have two more, the Lord's, in them. Now, what is the significance of these references to the Lord, repeated references? Well, they're a reminder that God is sovereign. Let me explain here. The Hebrew word for God in the Old Testament is Elohim, Elohim. Say Elohim with me, Elohim. But Elohim is a generic word, it's just kind of a general word for, for God. But when God enters into a special relationship with his people in the Old Testament, he says, I don't want you to call me God. I don't want you to use the generic word. I want you to use my name. I want you to call me Yahweh. Say Yahweh with me. Yahweh. Yahweh. If you're a regular here, that ought to sound familiar because one of our worship songs is Yahweh, Yahweh. I love to shout your name, O Lord. Lord Yahweh is the Lord, the Lord. Now, what what is the significance of the name? Well, then the name communicates God's sovereignty. There's a personal relationship between God and his people. God is committed to his people, he cares for his people, he provides and protects his people. The repeated reference to the Lord in Genesis 39 underscores the fact that God is looking out for Joseph. You know, nothing that's happening to Joseph on the job, so to speak, is outside of God's concern and God's control. You get it? Good. Now, I want to ask you, are you learning the sovereignty lesson at work? Are you learning the sovereignty lesson? There are two common errors we make In this regard, one common error is we assume we are in control. What a joke, right? Now, I'm not. I'm not dissing the fact that we ought to work hard. We ought to take responsibility for what we do on on the job. I'm just saying there are, are are a billion results out there that we have no control over. Every time we hire a person at Christ Community Church, we ask them to take a personality profile test called the DISC, D-I-S-C. I've taken it numerous times myself. My portrait always comes up the same. My personality portrait, I'm called results-oriented, okay? (laughs) That's me. Now, let me tell you what that means, That that means that I'm really frustrated sometimes when I've done the best I can and the results still aren't what I'd like them to be. When that happens to me, I fuss and I fume. I lose sleep. I work harder. I work longer. Until the sovereignty lesson dawns on me again, I can't do anything about my results. It's God's department. Let, 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 Let me tell you another common error. You know, another common error is to assume that other people are in control of what happens to us on the job. And some of you feel that way today. You feel like your boss is in control of your work life. You know, the dude is not pr- promoting me. He's he's keeping me from uh, moving up the ladder, or he's giving me too much work to do, or it's the cranky customer who who's always complaining, that's controlling my life. It's the preschooler who refuses to get potty trained, who's controlling my life right now. It's the math teacher who won't give me more than a C plus even though I'm doing A work. You know, there are other people out there controlling me. No, God's in control. That's the sovereignty lesson. You know, years later, we're going to fast forward in the Joseph story for just a moment. You've got to read the rest of the story yourself sometime. But years later, Joseph goes to work for Pharaoh, I mean the Pharaoh. And his brothers come to stand before him, and they're shaken in their sandals because they expect vengeance from Joseph. Years earlier, they had messed him over, and now he's the number Two men in all of Egypt, they're going to get what's coming to them. And instead, I want to read to you what Joseph says. It's in the very last chapter of, of Genesis, Genesis 50. Joseph said to them, verses 19 and 20, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? I mean, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. You know, people may try to mess you over on the job. But they're not in control. God is. He he can take what happens on the job, the worst things that happen to you on the job, and he can work them together for your good. So this is the sovereignty lesson. God is in control. He's in control of what you're currently experiencing on the job. Are you learning that lesson? Lesson number two. I'm going to call it the presence lesson, God's presence. little trivia quiz here. What special day do we celebrate the fourth Thursday of every April? Fourth Thursday of every April. Call it out, all four campuses. It's, no, it's not Cubs opening day. (laughs) It is take your kids to work day. Did you know that? By declaration of the United States Senate. Got launched back in 1993 by feminist Gloria Steinem. And she dubbed it Take Your Daughters to Work Day. And then 10 years later, they threw sons into the mix. And so now it's just Take Your Kids to Work Day. It's actually celebrated all around the world. In the United States last April, 37 million kids participated as mom or dad took them to their workplace. 3.5 million different workplaces. Now, I want you to imagine this, okay? Imagine if you would, you, you take your child to work, and you sit him or her in a corner of your, your office, <laughs> your, you know, your factory, your shop, your clinic, and you don't talk to them for the next eight hours. You, you just like totally ignore them. Evidently, this sometimes happens, because if you go to the official web, website of Take Your Kids to Work Day, You will find all sorts of suggestions regarding what not to do to ignore your kids and what you can do to engage your kids throughout the course of the day. Now, I'm using this as an analogy. Uh, Joseph didn't take his kids to work because at this point in the story, Genesis 39, he wasn't married, didn't have kids. But listen, Joseph took his God to work. Joseph took God to work. God was with Joseph when Joseph was on the job. Joseph was keenly aware of God's presence with him, tapping into that presence. I want you to know just a couple of ways in which this is expressed. Uh, First, with the expression, with Joseph, or with him. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. Remember, I keep telling you, every time you see something that's repeating, it ought to get your attention. So drop down to verse 3 middle of the verse the lord was with him if you drop down to 21 and 23 you'll see it a couple more times with joseph with him joseph practiced the presence of god throughout the course of the day now friends god is omnipresent right theologians will tell you god is everywhere present so he's with you on the job whether you recognize it or not but what i want to ask you is Are you aware of it? Or are you keeping God sitting in a chair in the corner of wherever you work? Are you engaging God? There's something else that goes on in this story that's interesting. One Bible scholar points it out. He says, not only is the Lord's name mentioned repeatedly, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, as we've already seen, Joseph's name is repeated six times in the opening six verses. It's almost kind of odd. Joseph, 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 Joseph. What is the point? This Bible scholar says, well, it's the combination of the Lord and Joseph, the Lord and Joseph, the Lord and Joseph, the Lord and Joseph. Joseph." We're we're, we're being told that Joseph went to work in partnership with God. When Joseph went to work, he took God with him. When we go to work, are we aware of the Lord's presence with us? Are we learning the presence lesson? Uh, Tom Nelson, in his book, Work Matters, this is the book I recommended last week, and I said, We're, you know, we weren't carrying it yet. Well, we've got it at resource. So at any of our four campuses, you could pick up a copy of that book today. He makes an obser- observation along these lines. He says, you know, back in the 19th century and, and before, most people in our country, they lived in rural areas or in small towns. And, and, and typically, their workplace was at their home. It was the farm that they worked or their shop was, you know, part of their little estate. And, and so if you were a Christ follower back then, you, you practiced your faith in your home. That's where you, you read your Bible. That's where you prayed. That's where you talked to family members about God. He said automatically you were practicing your faith on the job because your, your workplace was your home. You following this? But Nelson says today that's not true for most of us. If you're a Christ follower who works outside the home, you've got to make a conscious effort to deliberately take God to work with you. You say, well, how do you do this? I think that's a wonderful question. In fact, I think it's such a good question. You know, I'd like to throw it out to you and say, if you're in one of our 300 and some community groups, ask the people in your group that question this week. If you're a group leader, even if you're covering a different topic, a different passage, just say, hey, before we we begin, how do you keep aware of God's presence throughout the course of your day? Or if you're a high school student, go into a house group. Ask the other students in your group, how do you guys keep aware of God's presence throughout the course of the school day? You know, I think you'll you'll hear tips like this. You'll you'll hear, well, you know, you gotta pray. You just gotta deliberately make an effort before you make a decision, before you go into a meeting, definitely before you take a test. Yeah, just bow your head for a moment and pray. Remind yourself, I'm in this with God. Bring your Bible to work. You know, not just as a decoration, you put it on your coffee table or on your workbench. But you, you bring it so you can read it one time during the day. If you've got several breaks, you know, hang out with people for most of the breaks. But one of those breaks, follow the Scripture Union Bible reading schedule. Take 15 minutes and read the Bible. Or, or put a plaque somewhere, somewhere where you'll see it that's got a Bible verse on it. Inside your locker at, at school or on the wall of, of your office or over your workbench. Drop God's name into conversation. Not simply to be a witness, not not so that you'll open a conversation about Jesus, but just to remind you that he's there, because it's kind of weird. I mean, if somebody else was traveling alongside of you throughout the course of the day, wouldn't it be strange if you never made any reference to that person? Okay, well, God's with you. Just drop him into conversation. Set an alert on on your watch or on your cell phone, so every hour when it beeps, you say, oh, God step back. God, you're here with me. Just want to remind myself of that. Keep me aware of your presence. Now, maybe these ideas help you. Maybe they don't come up with your own. The point I want to make here is you got to be intentional or it won't happen. You'll go through your workday oblivious to God's presence. And I know because I do it far too often myself. And I'm a pastor. I'm doing church work. And yet, some days can be so busy as I fly from meeting to meeting to meeting, I could come to the end of the day and say, oh, where was God in all that? By the way, just a footnote to this point. If you haven't yet surrendered your life to Christ, and this is something that's got to be done very consciously, very deliberately, you know, where, where you relinquish control of your life to him, you say, I want you to be savior and king of my life. I want you to rule in my life. If you've never done that, then God is still on the outside, and it's difficult to sense his presence. But Jesus promises that when you surrender your life to him, he will send his spirit to come live on the inside. And now you're more keenly aware that wherever you go, God goes with you. So if you don't have that experience of God living on the inside by his spirit... It's because you've never surrendered to Christ. We can help you do that at any one of our welcome centers after the service today. Just go and say, I want to do that surrender thing. I want the Spirit of God to come live on the inside. And we'll, you know, we'll walk you through a couple of steps, and you can leave here today having God on the inside. Okay, This is the presence lesson. Number three, the giftedness lesson. Uh, when my daughter Emily got married... Uh, she and her husband moved to the West Coast, um, still trying to forgive him for taking her away, and uh, she got a job there. She got a job working as a ticket agent for an airline. Uh, now, she thought it was a fantastic job. We thought it was a fantastic job. Why? Because, you know, if you've just moved 2,000 miles from home, it's good to have free air travel to go back and see mom and dad. So we're th- Terrific. So glad you got the job. But it turned out to be a horrible job. Now, it's not that the job was horrible. It was horrible for Emily. See, my daughter Emily, she's a petite young woman. She weighs like maybe 105, 110 soaking wet, you know, with marbles in her pockets. (laughs) And so all day long what she was doing as a ticket agent, she was taking a 50-pound suitcase and moving it from the scale to the conveyor, from the scale to the conveyor, and it, it wrecked her back. She started seeing a chiropractor for back problems and finally decided this is not the job for me. Again, good job, just not the job for her. Now, I mentioned earlier that this past week, I Googled why do some people hate their jobs. 107 million results. The top website, top of the list, was Business Insider, and they ran an article, 17 Reasons Why People Hate Their Jobs. Number one reason, get this. Number one reason is that far too many people right after school they found a job because they knew they had to have some employment to pay the bills and they didn't pay a whole lot of attention as to whether it was a good fit and they've continued to do that job year after year after year. In fact, in some cases they've changed companies for better pay, better perks, want to live in another part of the country and they've stayed in the same line of work for which they're ill-suited. Okay, Joseph was well-suited for his job. And that's a good thing for Joey because he didn't have any choice in the matter. You know, he was a slave. He couldn't exactly quit and go get work elsewhere. But it's obvious as we continue in the story in Genesis 39 that God had gifted Joseph for his line of work. And why do I say that? Well, because there's evidence here that Joseph was gifted at what he did. He was good at it. As I read the next set of verses to you, I want you to note, notice that Joseph experienced success. It's one of the evidences that you're using your gift. That, that Joseph experienced the favor of his boss. His boss recognized, hey, the guy's really good at this. And he experienced the blessing of God. He, he felt a sense of significance, sense of joy at, at, at what he did. Follow along as I read, picking it up at verse 3. When Joseph's master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household. He entrusted to his care everything he owned. And from the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. Are you learning the giftedness lesson? You know, are are, are you discovering what you do that's successful or what you do that other people say, wow, you're, you know, you're good at that, especially a boss. When you you do it, you feel a a certain sense of God's blessing, like I'm I'm in my sweet spot. Now, please understand, when I use the word giftedness, this is not only true of certain professions. Like, we're not just talking about concert violinists or brain surgeons or professional athletes. Everybody ought to be gifted at what they do. And when you see giftedness in people, whatever they do, oh, it's a cool thing. Have you, you ever seen a preschool teacher gifted to be a preschool teacher? It is wonderful. You ever walk into Trader Joe's and see someone gifted to work there? I mean, there's just a buzz in the place. People love their jobs there. I know gifted landscapers. I know gifted IT specialists. I I know gifted this and gifted that. I know people who are not gifted to do what they're doing. You run into those? You know, I remember the year one of my kids had a grade school teacher who was not gifted to be a grade school teacher. In fact, I thought she hated kids by the way she behaved. It's yeah, not good. Now, if, if, if you sense that you're in the wrong place, like what do you do? So you know, maybe you're working for somebody and you ought to be running a business. Or maybe you're running a business and you ought to be working for somebody. You're in the wrong place. What do you do? Well, let me recommend a resource that we provide at Christ Community Church. It's called Career Transitions Workshop. We, we just finished this weekend, our second week of a five-week series, but I've been told that you can drop in at any point. So you could start coming next weekend, Saturday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. at our St. Charles campus, and you'll be able to network with other people who are scoping out, what, what am I good at? What has God gifted me to do? If I were to change careers, what should I move into you know how do I get started down this path at least go to the library if you're not gonna to come to career transitions go to the library pick up a book on the topic or talk to somebody who really knows you Say, oh, you know what am I gifted at what do you see me as as being good at just going back to my story of Emily for a moment so when she quit her airport job she got a job as a child welfare advocate and you talk about finding your sweet spot I mean it combined Everything that God had hardwired into Emily. Her passion for children, she loves kids. You know, her passion for justice, she was the lawyer in the family growing up, if you know what I mean. Okay, now she argues on behalf of kids who are being abused in bad homes. You know, she she has an ability to take charge of a situation, put things in, in order. You know, it's all come together for her. Now, there's a footnote to this story. A a week ago, Emily called us on the phone, and she said, Mom and Dad, I've been doing this job for nine years. It's a wonderful job, but, you know, most people don't last in this job longer than three years before they burn out. And so I'm beginning to look at it now and saying, is there someplace else that God wants to use me, someplace where my gifts are better suited? See, the the giftedness lesson, you're never done with it. You know, it's always appropriate to evaluate how has God made me, and is that how I'm being used? Lesson number four, the trustworthiness lesson. Okay, Joseph's trustworthiness is a theme that is repeated again and again and again in Genesis 39. Look at the second half of verse 4. If you got your Bible open, Potiphar put Joseph in charge of his household, and he entrusted There's the trustworthy word entrusted to his care everything he owned. Drop down to verse 6. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, Potiphar did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Drop down to verse 8. Joseph is now refusing the sexual advances of Mrs. Potiphar. And listen to what he tells her. He says, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted, there's the trustworthy word again, to my care. Okay, you get the idea. Joseph was a trustworthy guy. His boss gave him a lot of responsibility. You say, big deal. The dude was a slave. How much responsibility could that possibly be? A lot. In fact, we have a papyrus, an official document dating back to this very period of Joseph's life, a house report, a home in Egypt with a listing of their slaves, their servants, 80 servants you know, some were serving outside the house, some serving on the inside. So keeping in mind that Potiphar was a high official in Egypt and that he had, he had entrusted his entire state to Joseph, you can assume that Joseph was managing, what, maybe 100 people or so? You say, why? Why did Potiphar trust him with so much? Because Joseph was Trustworthy. Now, there are two aspects of trustworthiness that we can learn from Joseph's example. So jot these down. First one is this you prove it over time. Okay, trustworthiness is something that you prove over time. As, as you read the story of Joseph in Genesis 39, you're, you're sort of left with the impression that he didn't hold the job for a long time. I mean, Mrs. Potiphar, as we're about to see, she got him in trouble, and Joseph not only lost his job, he got thrown in jail. And so, so you say to yourself, so he served for, like, what, six months? Maybe a year, two years? No, I want you to do the math with me. Okay? Joseph was 17 years old, according to Genesis 37, verse 2. You can look it up your, yourself sometime. 17 years old when his brothers sold him into slavery, and he landed up working for Mr. Potiphar. 17. Okay, years later, when he got out of jail and started working for Pharaoh... According to Genesis 41, verse 45, he was 30 years old. So, 30 years old minus 17 years old is a period of how many years? Oh, come on, we could do the math better than that. How many years? 13 years minus two years in prison? 11 years. 11 years he worked for Mr. Potiphar, over a decade. You say, what's your point? My point is Joseph probably wasn't given a huge amount of responsibility overnight. He proved his trustworthiness to his boss for 11 years. You know, it's not uncommon in the workplace today for people to want big chunks of responsibility and they want it right away. Okay, I, I want to be trusted now. I just finished reading a book by Dave Ramsey on leadership. And he warns bosses to resist this demand. He writes, wise people trust other people with big important things only to the extent that they have spent time with them. If you give big tasks to unproven people, you will have drama and problems. Don't delegate too quickly. And then Ramsey goes on to describe this guy whom he'd hired who felt micromanaged because he had an MBA and yet was not allowed to... you know, have complete freedom shortly after being hired. And Ramsey writes, in his maturity, he felt micromanaged when in reality he hadn't been with us long enough for us to trust him yet. I love the next line. We had toilet paper that had been in the building longer than him. And yet he wanted me to toss the keys to the kingdom to him. I've realized that when someone first joins my team, until they prove their integrity and competence, it's not micromanaging at all, but should be called training. You watch every detail, push every button, until you see they can do the job. You prove trustworthiness over time. I want to say to you, if you feel micromanaged on the job, maybe you are. Maybe you are. But maybe... Maybe you need to just start proving your trustworthiness over time. I mean, maybe there needs to be a conversation with your boss, like, what can I do to prove that I'm trustworthy? But it gets proven over time. Here's a second aspect of trustworthiness that we could learn from Joseph. You prove it in every way. Another word that pops up repeatedly in Genesis 39, keep looking for the repeating words, is the word everything. Six or seven times, Joseph proved his trustworthiness to Potiphar in everything. See, it's possible to be trustworthy in one part of your job and totally untrustworthy in other parts of your, your, your job. It's possible to be trustworthy, for example, in the use of your skills. Okay, maybe you know how to design a website or you know how to draw up a legal contractor take an x-ray, close a sale, navigate a 16-wheeler, your boss would trust you completely with the use of your skills because you're good at what you do. However, would your boss also trust you to keep your word? In other words, have you proven yourself to be honest? You know, you you don't exaggerate sales figures. You don't pad your expense account. you, You don't call in sick when you're really at a Cubs game. Wrigley? Yeah. Just in case that happened to anyone recently. You don't say that you're working on something when the boss says, Hey, are you working on that project? Oh, yeah, I've been working on it when you haven't been working on it. Are you trustworthy when it comes to keeping your word? By the way, this goes for bosses too. Read an interesting statistic this past week. A study was done three or four years ago in the workplace, and it was discovered that 48% of the people who've recently moved. Jobs changed to another company, left the company they had been in, 48%, say because they couldn't trust their boss's word. They couldn't, they couldn't believe what he or, he or she was saying. Okay, so are you trustworthy in keeping your word? What, what about your work ethic? Are you trustworthy? Here's another incredible statistic I came across this week reading my news magazine. You know, the NFL season has has begun, and so fantasy football has also begun. Some of you are doing the fantasy football thing. They did a survey of the workplace, and it's estimated that companies in the U.S. lose $1 billion a week because of people playing around at fantasy football instead of doing their work. A billion dollars a week of lost productivity. So when you're at work... Are you working? Or are you taking extended lunch breaks and you know, going online to do some shopping? What about gossip? Can you be trusted not to gossip? Can, can the people you work with count on the fact that you won't be dissing them behind, your back, behind their backs? Here's another quote from Ramsey's book on leadership, this time around gossip. He sa- says, gossip about the company or about leadership is a particularly evil form of disloyalty. You know, and it's suicidal. Think about it. It's suicidal when the person person gossiping is hurting and running down the place of the people who pay him so he could feed his family. He says, I hate gossip so badly that after putting up with it at the start, I decided to have a no gossip policy in our company. You are not allowed to gossip and work for me. You know, if, if one of my leaders or I catch a team member gossiping, we will warn them once and then we will fire them. See, Ramsey wants trustworthiness. Are you learning the trustworthy, trustworthiness lesson on the job? You learn it over time, and you display it in every area of your work life. Here's a fourth and final lesson. I'll call it the morality lesson. And th- this is the part of the Joseph story that we're most familiar with. So I want you to pick it up with me last line of verse 6 Joseph was well built and handsome and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said come to bed with me but he refused with me in charge he told her my master does not concern himself with anything in the house everything he owns he's entrusted to my care no one's greater in this house than I am my master's withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife how then could I do such a wicked thing get this and sin against God. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Now one day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. You know, there is a ton we could learn about Joseph with respect to morality on the job. In fact, if we had the time, we could make an entire sermon out of how to deal with sexual temptation on the job from this part of the story. As a matter of fact, I have done a sermon on that very topic from this part of the story. But today, all I want to do in wrapping things up is make a few observations that I'm used on in the course of the week as I study this passage. Okay, here's some things to consider from the story, and you'd probably see them yourself if you read it a second or, or a third time. The first, first thing I observe is this. You must determine ahead of time what you're going to do with sexual temptation. Okay, Mrs. Potiphar comes on to Joseph in verse 7, comes out of the blue, but in verses 8 and 9, he gives her a well-argued three-point explanation as to why it w- would be incredibly foolish to go to bed with her. Bible scholars say, boy, you read that and you realize Joseph wasn't making this up off the top of his head. He knew ahead of time, before he faced the temptation, he knew what he would do with it if it ever popped up in his life. And so the point is here, you know, do you know where you're going with this? If you face it, do you know what you're going to do? Because if you don't, you're bound to do something stupid in a weak moment. Something else I I observed in this part of the story, uh, one no is never enough, okay, because sexual temptation pops up again and again and again and again, and sometimes it's initiated by somebody else, sometimes it's initiated by the thoughts in your, your own imagination, Sometimes it's different people who are tempting you. Sometimes it's the same person. Mrs. Potiphar invited Joseph to go to bed again and again and again, and Joseph said no again and again and again. So if you say, I could say no once, I could say no to this temptation, and it'll go away, it won't go away. You'll have to say no again and again. Third observation I make is, you know, just run like the devil's after you. It's what Joseph did. Now, even when Mrs. Potiphar grabbed him by his cloak, he shed it and he scooted out of the house. And I would say to you, if, if you're in a situation at work, at school, where you find someone particularly alluring, keep your distance you know, as much as you can. You don't, you don't do private one-on-one lunches with that person. You don't travel if you don't have to with that person. You don't text them during off hours. You don't have extended conversations with them at the, at the water cooler. Distance is your friend. Here's another observation I make. You know, if you, if you don't leave your resentments with God, they're going to open the door to sexual temptation. So imagine this for a moment imagine if Joseph went to work every day and he was thinking, this job sucks. I mean, my my, my brothers got me into this. They sold me into slavery. I I work for Mr. Potiphar, bring all these successful results to his household, and he still treats me like a slave. If Joseph had gone to work thinking these thoughts, Mrs. Potiphar would have begun to look really good. Say, why not? You know, if, if the job is bad, I mean, if you're holding resentments in your heart for your job, if you're musing on the negatives of your job the likelihood is when sexual temptation comes your way it will look like a great escape from the drudgery of your work. Temptation will, will be more tempting. One final observation I make. Yielding to temptation, sexual temptation will get you into trouble every time. Now you fast forward in the story Mrs. Potiphar doesn't like the fact that she's been snubbed, so she accuses Joseph of attempted rape, and he not only gets fired, he gets thrown in jail. And so some of you might conclude the dude should have just had sex with her, you know, then then he could have had some, you know, some excitement in his life and avoided jail. Really? Do you really think that? You know, I, I think that If he had had sex with Mrs. Potiphar, she would eventually have gotten tired of her boy toy Joseph, moved on to somebody else, and he still would have landed up in prison, except with a sullied conscience conscience, and a destroyed character and a broken relationship with God. So there may be tough things on the job. If you say no to temptation of any of any sort, it m- might still not go well with you, but you'll be where God wants you to be. And then you go back to the sovereignty lesson. God is in control. God, the master Potter, is using your job to shape you into the person He wants you to be. Your workplace is, is the master potter's wheel. Your school is the master potter's wheel. Don't resist what God wants to teach you. Learn the sovereignty lesson. God's in control. Learn the presence lesson. i got to practice engaging God throughout the course of my day. Learn the giftedness lesson. Keep looking and saying, am I in the right spot for the gifts God's given me? Learn the trustworthiness lesson. Prove it over time. Prove it in every way that I can be trusted. Learn the morality Lesson. If you're failing in the morality lesson right now as you hear my voice, find a trusted confident that you could go to and say, I need help, I need prayer, I just need accountability. Get in my face. Ask me next week about this relationship whether I've cut it off, whether I've turned my back on it. Let me close with the lyrics to an old hymn. You know, these words make for a good prayer. Have your own way, Lord. Have your own way. You are the potter and I am the clay. Mold me, make me after your will while I'm waiting, yielded and still. Great prayer to pray before you go to work this week. Lord God, I want to thank you not only for the uh, satisfaction and fulfillment we get from our jobs, feeling like we're contributing to something. But I also want to thank you for the fact that we're on the receiving end of something you're doing in us through our jobs. That they are your potter's wheel. And where we have struggled, where we've been resistant, where some of us are facing hard times on the job right now, I pray that you would help us to see you can take whatever comes our way and use it for our good, to mold us into the people people you want us to be. So I pray that this week we would go out with that fresh attitude and it would impact our workplace. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Have a great week.